Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Welcome to the next episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I am very pleased to introduce my guest today, who is Herbert Miller. Herb is one of the legendary developers in Washington, DC history. Herb has developed at least seven major mixed-use developments in the Washington, DC area, and then many, many strip shopping centers also in the region prior to that. We talk about his entire career and growing up in Silver Spring, Maryland, and some of his <laughs> antics and growing up going to GW, and then imagining developing just right in college, joining the brokerage industry and retail, and getting ideas from the get-go about building large retail properties, starting with Matza Gallery, which is Wisconsin and Western in the district, then Georgetown Park, then Washington Harbor. Then he came up with the idea for Potomac Mills, and then Market Square, Portals, Gallery Place. He formed the Mills Corporation as a result of Potomac Mills, and he was probably one of the founders of the off-price retail concept, which the Mills Corporation basically portrayed in a much larger style. So you'll hear all that. It's a phenomenal discussion. And uh, for a legendary, perhaps the mo- one of the most visionary uh, developers in, uh, in the retail industry history. So without further ado, here is Herb Miller. Welcome, Herb. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. It's really a pleasure, pleasure to meet you. Thank pleasure you. Pleasure and an honor to have you on this, on this, this show. And your career is uh, well known in the region, but I, I wanted to get into a little more of the details and have uh, the younger listeners hear your story, which I think is a fascinating story. I've had the opportunity to interview with you with uh, my earlier uh, ULI Young Leaders, and we walked around Washington Harbor and Georgetown Park one day and really enjoyed that. So I wanted to get a little bit more into your background. So first of all, I wanted to find out what you're up to right now, and are you still active in the real estate business? And let me know what your current activities are. Yeah, it's hard to get out of it once you're in it. And I, this is my last project, I promised my wife. But I'm doing a project with Chip Ackrich and Tom Wilbur on uh, River Point. It's the old, it's an ex-office building, which gives very high ceilings for residential. You know, district's got residential eight foot six. This is a foot higher, which I think makes a difference. And it's sitting right down the water in the hottest growth area of the city. And next to Fort McNair and, and this you know, very large yacht club in on on the, where the Potomac and the Anacostia meet, right down the river, you know, river from uh, all that development uh, that is uh, related to DC United behind us and on the water 
where the development near the new bridge is, which is pretty amazing if you've been down to the whole southwest, southeast waterfront. Yes. It is really yes. the new growth area of the city. It's got a big project and, you know, various large projects. So is this a, a mixed-use project or is it all office or, or all residential? Uh, no, it, it's housing. It's 480 units mm-hmm. with 75% of them have amazing views of the river. And then the rest look at the Capitol. And uh, you never know what you want to see in the Capitol. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, the views are outstanding. And again, because it was an office building, you got an extra foot height in your residences uh, compared to the That's average. Residents. So the um, views are spectacular at top. And the ground level is going to be three great restaurants on the water and the new home at DC Central Kitchen, which hasn't been announced. Uh, we are, Spike Jurdy, who is won the James Beard Award for the best chef in the Mid-Atlantic, he and his partner are going to open up a market that's a large 10,000-foot market that is going to be outstanding and be a destination for that whole area. That's uh, exciting. Yeah, they're, they're also doing a waterfront restaurant. And in addition, Greg Caston, who is the largest seafood distributor in the Washington area. Mm-hmm. And the net, net, Tony and Joe's, that was his uh, uncle, and he's taken over that in mm-hmm. Washington Harbor, which I developed. And he's going to, it's opening the seafood restaurant right on the water. And we are negotiating for the last restaurant space as we speak. That's exciting. So you, you can't, you can't stop going. (laughs) I'm close. I, um, my wife (laughs) said this better be the last or I, I can, you know, go down the miles river in my rowboat and get lost. (laughs) The next issue I wanted to get into is what we're experiencing right now, which we have, we've both been through a lot of crises in our career, but this is a pretty unique one. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about what we're going through now and how you think uh, we can come out of this and how, we, how the human race will deal with this going forward and how it affects the real estate industry from your perspective, Herb. What do you think? You know, a global epidemic is you know, much more than I've seen in the past. I do think they're going to come up with some kind of uh, medicine, that a vaccine to protect against it. So many billions are being spent on that. You know, the question is, is that one month or five months? I sort of go longer because, you you know, the government wants to get things approved, uh, but they got to be safe while they're doing it sort of add that to the election coming up and it makes a lot of insecurity in terms of people's view of things and where the future is. Yes. Um, And I, I think that a liberal city like DC even has more angst about it because uh, although Trump is president in a city that's more democratic and more liberal, uh, how does it react to not know who's going to be president in November and how that's going to work. I think as that gets firmed up and you know who's president and who's the vice president, I think that can get rid of a lot of the concern. Now, our project is rental apartments, right? amazing apartments because of the ceiling heights and the views and 
the size of them, they're bigger than the average apartment, balconies overlooking the water, courtyards that are, you know, amazing with trees and green areas. So I think that we just started leasing it. And I think we have five people take a look at it this past weekend and five people signed leases. So hopefully we can set up. Being a developer, you're always scared. Chip Ackridge is our partner and Tom Wilbur's their partners are great partners in this project. And they have really been, they were my partners at Gallery Place. Mm-hmm. So, so we're really excited. excited about it as we, and then as we announce additional restaurants, it'll be really uh, worthwhile and a, and a place, a destination. I believe in having projects that have destinations. That's great. So, you, your, your belief then is the pandemic won't have long-term implications on that. You think that once the vaccine comes, we'll be back to normal and be able to function again pretty much as we had pre Once the vaccine comes, there'll yeah. be a lot of confusion as to how you can produce it and who can get it. And right. That's going to run through the fall, in my opinion, because you, act, you combine it with the election and the insecurities there, it's going to stay a little in turmoil until the beginning of the year, in my opinion. Right. I, yeah. Let's hope you have a vaccine. Let's hope we get get this done. Okay. So let's uh, let's turn the clock back, Herb, a, a long way. <laughs> uh, let's go back to your... I didn't uh, know George Washington, but I was really friendly with him. <laughs> maybe not quite that far. How about uh, maybe the 19... Kennedy. 1940s, maybe? How John Kennedy I met. When I was in college. Oh, did you? Yes, okay. I was a summer intern for the federal government when I was a junior in college. And uh-huh. uh, he took us all to the White House and shook our hands. And it was pretty amazing. Wow. So were you a big Kennedy fan as a kid? Yeah, of course. I'll always be a Democrat. Right, right. So tell me where you, you know, raised, born and raised, where'd you grow up as a kid? I grew up in Silver Spring next to the old Indian Spring Country Club that became the Beltway. It was one of the interesting things. I, <laughs> they, when they built the Beltway, Maryland was quite developed and Virginia wasn't. So right. to make a circular Beltway, they had to go through developed areas of Maryland, and they took out six or seven golf courses. Right. So it was the cheap, easiest way to get land. Uh-huh. So they took out Indian Spring, they took out Sligo Creek, and all these golf courses so they could build the Beltway. I probably one of the first guys to drive in the Beltway because they built a segment from George Avenue to University Boulevard. Uh-huh. And I had an old Simca and I drove across <laughs> through the fence and across and got getting up to the, to the, it was quite hard getting up to the concrete. And I'm driving along there and all of a sudden at George Avenue, they had no blockades. They didn't think they'd be on it. And I stopped just in time before it went over the side at George Avenue. <laughs> oh, no. So this is about 1962, I guess, right? Is that when, when yeah. they let it open? Yeah. Yes. It's interesting. You may remember uh, my first boss in Washington when I moved here, the Salt Company, this guy named Pete Selwood. You may remember him. He yeah, the Salt Company is an amazing company. Right. Well, the story there is his father... Pete Solid's father was the engineer for the Capitol Beltway. And he told me the story about 
how they had to figure out how to get by Rock Creek Park. And that was a real political football, apparently, because of what happened. And now we have, we suffer uh, driving that stretch of road, uh, as we call it, the Rock Creek Roller Coaster. So it's an interesting story. And just beyond uh, I don't where know you were. They can never build a beltway now with there's so much politics. And now they're trying <laughs> to build the outer beltway. And, uh, you know, Virginia's got... You know, interesting, the Beltway, Virginia finished its segment five years, six years before Maryland did its, because, again, mm-hmm. it was an undeveloped area in Virginia. Getting this outer Beltway built, I think Ben will be an old man. Before. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, going cr- crossing into Potomac, Maryland from Virginia just is probably not going to happen in our lifetime, that's for sure. <laughs> Maybe somebody else's. Too many but. privileged people with too many well, we'll see. My sense is the millennials. Will, my sense is the millennials don't really look for huge mansions with big, big tracks. So someday, I think Potomac may sub be subdivided, and that may change the whole thought process. So I got to tell you something. The big, big thing that this region needs to look at is Washington and Baltimore is one city. Yes, it's grown together, and they need to have a better transportation between the two. You and I have talked about this. Mm-hmm. And they really need to have the metro from D.C. go into Baltimore, which is 38 miles. They go out 41 miles into Virginia and the Leesburg, et cetera. Why can't they go 38 miles into Baltimore and connect into its limited metro system and have one circulation? I agree. And be able to bring our, the, the greater Washington, Baltimore metropolitan area together it certainly would be a bigger, yeah, bigger boost for Baltimore than it is for Washington. But you know, I don't uh, know. I think it would allow less expensive housing for people that work yes. in the city. DC is very expensive to live. It is. They You're have right. wonderful old townhouses in Baltimore. Yeah. They have wonderful waterfront projects, and it'd be great if those people could live in Baltimore, work in Washington, and easily get there instead of the multiple stops they have to, you know, they, they say, well, there's already the train, et cetera. Anytime you break the travel in half, you almost cut the pop, uh, utilization in half. So You're right. I agree. So from, you know, car to train to the bus, it doesn't really work. So you studied uh, urban planning at, at George Washington University. And my sense is, based on what you just said, is that you think big about transit and how it interrelates with real estate. Talk a little bit about that or, and what your thinking is with regard to how value is created in real estate from a visionary standpoint. When I went to GW, my senior year, I worked full-time in real estate, went to college full-time. I remember one teacher said, we were talking in urban planning, he said, I want a commission for that idea. I remember that. But urban planning basically is a logical extension of people's lifestyle and as it changes how government can change cities and metropolitan areas to make to make the the lifestyle the, the physical lifestyle match the emotional and lifestyle of the people and i think that government's always a little slow in reacting to that because it has a lot of other a- aspects that it has to deal with, including racial issues and economic issues, 
where there isn't enough equality in that those areas. So how did uh, your, your training at urban planning get you into the development business? What, what kind of moved you in that direction? What turned you on about it to get you going to, to want to develop property? Well, when I was uh, in college, I decided uh, you had to be 21 back then to get a, be a salesman. So I went to the biggest developer back then, at least he thought he was, was Jerry, Jerry Wallman, who was a wonderful man. And, uh, you know, he had his great projects and his problems and so forth, as all developers do. And I went to see him. I didn't know. I didn't know the guy. And I met with his brother. And he then called a friend to see if I, he said, you should become a broker. Then you learn value, commercial broker. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I went from, to a friend, to somebody he recommended who got me to Floyd E. Davis Company, who owned Floyd owned sure. Bank. And I started there. And then shortly thereafter, I went to Shannon Lux, which was almost across the street. And that was amazing. That office, small office of Shannon Lux did 80% of all commercial real estate deals in the metropolitan area. Wow. Model. What year was this, Herb? Oh, my goodness. Late 60s? Seven, yeah, 68. Yeah. Okay. So it was before um, the big brokerage firms came to town, like CB and everybody else. So they were a local shop, pretty much. Well, I actually brought call a banker to Washington because I was building uh, Georgetown Park, and I didn't see the quality of uh, retail leasing. Really? And, uh, my friend was... I, I flew out to California. I had a, a friend who was their top broker. He had me meet the two owners. I think one was a Caldwell and the president of the company. And I said, uh, I need you to lease uh, Georgetown Park and uh, you should open a, uh, an office in D.C. So they got a guy named, I think it was Boyd Van Ness. And he yes. got they had him to do my yeah. leasing and Boyd open the office for Caldwell Banker and the rest is history. Well, uh, actually, several of my podcast guests before were part of that opening office. People like Ray Ritchie, Cab Grayson, Bill James, all are still around this area. <laughs> uh, they they, they did an amazing job of professionalizing yes. a business. D.C. was a small town. Right. And it was growing so fast that it needed sophistication of a banker to understand the impact of the metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. So as the Beltway was being built and Metro was being built, you needed to integrate the area and have much more thought of how it can come together. And I think they did a good job of that. So you were at Shannon and Lux, and was there a mentor, any individual there that really kind of told you, hey, Herb, this is what you should be thinking about doing. Or was there other than Jerry Wollman, who is an amazing guy. I met him in the 1990s when he was struggling after a lot of his, he had some issues, as you may remember, in the late 80s with his buildings in Chicago. But uh, uh, were there other mentors that you had at that time? Shannon Lux, again, I said at eight, I think at almost 80% of the commercial market in this one uh-huh. office at Metro Hall in Washington. There are a lot of characters there. There, 
Jimmy Sautel, who sold the Bond building eight times. <laughs> Warren Montori yeah. was his assistant, and Warren, then Warren, Warren became one of the biggest brokers. I mean, but he had a, a desk piled about a foot and a half high with papers. Oh, my God. One day, Warren, when he first got the job, started putting him in files, and Jimmy came in and almost fired him and screamed at him because he would reach into this. Remember this deal you did? In 1942, he'd reach into the pile and pull out the paper. It was like magic. And then there was a guy named Saul Wahlberg who was, he and Jimmy hated each other, and he was represented a lot of people. I tell you, one of the funny stories, I, I came off the elevator lunchtime one day, and Colonel Sanders is sitting in the lobby, and there's no reception. It was really said, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> yeah, it was Colonel Sanders with a cane and the hat. They have all the stuff. I said, oh, can I help you? I'm, I'm here to see, uh, uh, I think it was Wahlberg. And, I, and he, uh, I, I said, well, I'll go tell him you're here. And I told him, and Colonel Sanders is out. I'm waiting for you. <laughs> and it turns out he bought for his kids, I think it was, South Carolina and Georgia franchises for both states. Uh, wow. That's what he made a deal. But that's he had the hat, he had the beard. He was like, you know, it's like a commercial. <laughs> that's funny. But I learned a lot from all those people. It was when you have 80% of a market share and every broker at the, uh, it's been around for 20 or 30 years, and they all have their special clients. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to share their clients with anybody else. It was, uh, it could have make a great sitcom. So you decided to get in development. What transitioned you from doing deals as a broker to the development business? What, uh, what gave you that impetus? Having had a lot of experience in, you know, in learning planning, I really believed in mixed-use projects. There weren't any in the city. I believed in getting retail in a city that was totally under retail. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I did was probably the hottest intersection in the city then was Wisconsin and Western. And a woman named Olga Mazza owned the project, the whole block. It was She leased part of the land to put in, I think, Lord and Taylor. And the rest was the main intersection. And uh, they... Uh, went ahead and I got friendly with her and I said, you know, I'm going to see if I can get some tenants to go in there. So what was your vision for the property at the time? Or I mean, what what did you, what did you envision there at that site? A shopping mall. You did. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, I said, you know what you need here is Neiman Marcus. (laughs) I said, okay, get Neiman Marcus. And this woman would call me up at three in the morning and she could talk to me and was like, you had to be 22 years old to put up with those, the pain of that. So I get on the phone, I call Stanley Marcus and I said, you know, I think you should be in Chevy Chase. He said, well, come on down. <laughs> I flew down to, to Dallas and met with him and I Worked out a deal. Oh, and he had just sold his company to Carter Holly Hale. 
and the president Carter Hall Hale was there. Did you cold call? Huh? Did you cold call? Did you cold call Stanley Marcus, or did you know yeah. him before? I didn't know. Wow. Wow. Years old. So I went down there, and the president of Carter Hall Hale, that owned all the department stores on the West Coast at that time. Their broker was Bruce Ludwig of Caldwell Banker, who was their national accounts guy. I know Bruce. <laughs> that's yes. funny. And so I got friendly with Bruce, and that's how I brought Caldwell Banker to Washington. Wow. And of course, I brought Neiman Marcus. Um, that's exciting. So that I, was your anchor. I tied up Oroy Chalk on the, the transit line before the district bought it from him. And he owned Carborn in the dis on Wisconsin and West and M. And I wanted to build them all there. So I convinced him to give me an option to do it. And then I got called a banker to help me lease it. Uh, and we built Georgetown Park. So did you have a team at that time, Herb? I mean, did, is that the founding of Western Development? Or how did Western Development formulate? How did you start that? Yeah, probably, you know, uh, that was our first project. I also... Uh, did you have a team? Did you have a team at the time? Or did you do that by yourself, more or less? I did most of it myself, and then I graduated, added people, some really good people that worked for me. And then I went and uh, started you know, leasing that using Cobalt Banker. I was managing the project for Georgetown Park and hired the architect and started developing it. So then uh, I started. How were the approval process at that time? I mean, as far as getting approvals with the, with the district to do what you wanted to do there, was that a challenging effort? Was it fairly simple? Easy. There was a, back then, there was a lot of racial strife between black and white. And certain, you know, Marion came in and started bringing blacks into government and the whites that were embedded for 30 and 40 years and, you know, in various departments didn't like it. And they wouldn't train the black, pe the black people to do the work. So not a lot got done. And you just had a push and kick to get anything done in the district back then. Because until people were trained for it, and it really was a, you know, I, told you last time that, and I was at the March on Washington with, when King made his I had a dream speech with my brother and my fraternity brother named Vince Gray. And it was quite an experience to see, to see that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there are not a lot of people left from that era, but that symbolically was a change to, to have less segregation and more integration. But it took years to have real solutions to black white problems. Part of it was training people in, to, to work in the city because the, a lot of the white workers wouldn't do it, wouldn't train these people. And it was, so a lot wasn't being done in the city. Right. You're, I really went to Marion who I loved. I mean, Marion Barry had a PhD in chemistry. He didn't, he just never picked up his certificate because he, got involved in the civil rights movement, never went back to pick it up. But he was one of the brightest men I ever met. And you'd have to go to the top of the city to get almost anything done because it was a, a, stuck in this 
racial changeover, and it wasn't very healthy for the city. What was Georgetown's acceptance of that? I mean, that was a big, big development there, and it was a major change for, you know, the, the street frontage retail that was there at the time. I mean, what was the sense of the neighborhood and the community at that time? Because I know they have a very strong neighborhood organization in Georgetown. Yeah, it was, I worked with the neighborhood on Georgetown Park, and uh, it was, it was positive, positive meaning that a majority of the people supported it. There are people that wouldn't support anything. And what Georgetown had a endemic group of people that were against change and against a city, which they thought of as a black city coming into Georgetown. It was such a backward mindset and really upset me. But I had many, much more problems building Washington Harbor. I thought people would really have for me to get rid of those, you know, all the coal trains that would dump coal in, you know, bring it in to, to heat the White House and, and all the industrial on the waterfront. And it was, mm-hmm. it was backwards underneath the freeway. But I used to get death threats from people when I was building Washington Harbor. Wow. Wow. So Georgetown was just afraid of change. But in Georgetown Park, it wasn't as evident as it was when I built the harbor. So you you secured uh, Garfinkel's there, as I recall. Correct. Who else was the anchor at at Georgetown Park? Well, Garfinkel's was the only department store. And uh, I got friendly with the president of Garfinkel's and got him to open the store. He then went and became the head of another chain. And most of the thing at Georgetown Park was building relationships with these 21st century merchants, the, you know, the new merchants that were changing things. From the Gap, for example, that was the Gap's first store in the East or ninth store in America. I remember wow. I, I took the president of the Gap for dinner uh-huh. on M Street and uh, a restaurant that isn't there now was, and convinced him he should be across the street at Georgetown Park. And it was a, just a little chain, but, you know, I was trying to get the best stores that were fit for the new generation that wanted to spend money. So you had to work every one of these stores separately. And I used Call a Banker to help me get introductions, but I had to go close most of the deals. So was Clyde's, was that one of the first Clyde's restaurants in the city that you opened? Clyde's was there already. And the interesting thing is uh, Clyde's was developed 15 years before that by, and I got very friendly with them because Mm -hmm. we had to open it up and we wanted them to connect into it. It was painful to go through that, but they were really good people and really responsible people. And they figured it would help their business to have, you know, the back of their store was became the, it was right on the mall at Georgetown Park. Right. So they were terrific to work. So you had some engineering issues on that site when you built it, well, didn't you? Because of the... Uh, I the think it was more masochism than engineering. I mean, we had a cause <laughs> of... The historic nature of the buildings next door, we had to hand dig the excavation, which slowed down the project five or six months. And you can imagine increased interest costs. 
we went through 21% prime. I don't know when it was, but interest rates went crazy. Early 80s. Yeah. Early 80s. Uh, yep. When we opened it up. But between interest rates and construction costs, it was really tough. But it worked out well and was successful. It's interesting. That project was built at the same time as National Place uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue, both huge mixed-use development projects. And uh, uh, we were the, uh, when I was joined the salt company, we were the lenders on, on that one. We weren't on Georgetown Park. We were on Washington Harbor. So it was interesting to hear, you know, how those projects got done at that time. It was really challenging with those interest rates at, you know, yeah, I mean, double, when, high double digits. Make those uh, numbers work. I have no idea how we survived with 21% prime and because you're paying construction interest. At, I remember we had a cap of 17%. That was a yeah. great deal on, uh, on the harbor. CSX who owned the land was a partner and they were a terrific group, the railroad company. But we got them to dedicate all the land from 31st Street to all the way to, to Maryland and give the right of way to do a park. And then it took 20 years to get the park built. But it was, uh, I don't know why, you know, it took us two presidents to get approval to build Washington Harbor. When did first you start that effort? When did the you first start push, that? Reagan. Uh-huh. No, the first one was Reagan and then Carter. I had a, both of them sign off because it was on the national park and had uh, controls over it. I'm so you're adjacent to Rock Creek Park. Rock Creek Park abutted the lots of site for Washington Harbor, right? On the right. Moment. And then the river, which was another, it's sort of, I'm back on the river again, River Point and Anacostia, but the river seems to draw me because I'm a master. <laughs> And you had a few construction issues at Washington Harbor as well, did you not? Oh, yeah. While we're under construction, the biggest flood in the history of yes. occurred. But the reason Washington Harbor flooded is that uh, uh, this was later after we sold it, is that they didn't turn on the pumps to pump out the water. It was mismanagement. Uh, that got it flooded, but they were able to get a lot of insurance to pay for it, which they used to remodel the project. The thing that Washington Harbor proved is, is that, you know, working on Anacostia and, you know, you're looking at the dark area at night, there you still have Roslyn. But what the fountain did, and we had to build that stupid tower for a million dollars back then, there was a lot of money. There's a Citizens Sports Fine Arts to make us do that tower. But I think the fountain and the, all that makes a big focal point for people yes. to come yes. to Tony and Joe's yes. uh, <laughs> restaurant. So talk about your vision for that project a little bit. I mean, uh, obviously you wanted a, a kind of a courtyard feeling on the, on the river. It's now, as you say, a focal point. It's still a major focal point in Washington. When you first saw the site, you were in college, I think, when you first noticed the site, or at least you had a project uh, with CSX. I did a paper on it when I was in college, airplane. Yeah. So what was your paper about, and how did that evolve into a project, just out of curiosity? 
Oh, I'm so old. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, basically, it was the idea of how Georgetown, remember, Georgetown was an industrial waterfront, a lot of vagrants, a lot of tournament of crime, and, uh, you know, the railroad there. And it was everything south of the canal was all industrial. So I did a plan for that whole area when I was in college. Really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So the was the Whitehurst Expressway built at that point, or was it not? It oh, was yeah, it not? that was built in the late 40s. We tried to get it torn down and built underground. And uh-huh. the problem is it was all, uh, and make it part of the metro, have the metro come through there. Mm-hmm. But the cost was prohibitive to do that. And then the reason they didn't do the metro is that Eva Hinton, who was the head of Georgetown Citizen Association, government relations, basically told the city that they wouldn't get their funding for the metro if they showed a stop in Georgetown. <laughs> so they went ahead and put it under the river and put a stop in Foggy, foggy Bottom. Mm-hmm. That was a very bad thing for Georgetown because they used their power back then to do something bad, which is not provide access to Georgetown, which today would have been a great benefit to Georgetown. Well, Georgetown seemed to have survived fairly well, even without Metro, but you're right. It would have enhanced it even more and probably add more density to Georgetown that, they do, that it doesn't have well, today, potentially. Internet shopping has really put a damper on retail in Georgetown. And if you look at all the closed stores, yeah. they're going to have to turn those into townhouse living because I don't think your street retail is going to be the strength that it was because of the internet. So from, from Georgetown, after you finished Washington Harbor, you stood and looked at other parts of the city and a couple other major projects that I'm aware of, and maybe you can talk about other ones that I'm thinking about. But Well, one while is I was Mar- doing that, uh-huh. I started Mills Corporation, and basically we acquired the property at Potomac Mills, Right, where Potomac Mills was, which was, uh, it was back then, outlet shopping was way out of the city because of the fear of manufacturers getting hurt by, you know, urban customers. So that was about as close as you could get into the city to get manufacturers to put outlets. So I, my partner and I tied up the site and we, uh, Needed to redo the interchange in the state of Virginia, and that was a nightmare to get that done. How much land was there? Is that over 100 acres, Herb? Oh, yeah, it was a large. We assembled over 100 acres. And then uh, we did a plan, and the hottest anchor in America back then was uh, Wacoma Pottery. Where else uh, were they in the country? They were in South Carolina and another place. And they did $100 million. I mean, that was enormous volume. So I called up the president of Wacoma Pottery and said, you should be in Washington, near Washington. Because these stores, the problem is off-price stores like that wanted to be close to the population. And manufacturers wanted to be away from the population. Uh So we had to make a site that was sort of equidistant. And that's what the Tumbling Mills was. So I went down to meet with the president of... uh, Wacoma Pottery, 
George. And uh, I showed him the plans, and he looked at me and said, you Yankees are crazy. <laughs> and, uh, but I eventually made a deal with him and put him there. And then I went to manufacturers and said, oh, this is an outlet center outside of the city as compared to convincing the off-price people we were in the city. And it was the same location. So we got a bunch of manufacturers. The most, one of the more interesting ones is the hottest store in the world back then was Ikea. The Ikea. Right. Right. Which is really Ikea. And uh, they own it. They gave a franchise to somebody in Canada. That was the closest place they were. And uh, I went to Sweden to meet with them. And then they said, you got to meet with the guy. Go look at the, uh, meet with the people in Canada. I went, flew out to Vancouver and met with them. And I convinced them they should come to the United States. We made a really sweetheart deal for Potomac Mills. Then they said, well, we need other locations. So they went to King of Prussia. They actually opened that store before Potomac Mills just because it was an existing department store they rehabbed. It took less uh-huh. time. And so we brought Ikea to the United States and we brought Wathama Pottery, which was the first sort of a big outlet store. Yep. And then we went to all the manufacturers and I had a whole team working with them with the top manufacturers in the country. Can, can we go back a little bit before that? Because uh, when I first met you, in 1983, I was at CB in Chicago. In 1983, I was a broker in the, in the Oak Brook office there. Wow. And I remember you came in and met with the, the retail brokers about a site in Downers Grove, Illinois, uh, and it was called the T.H. Mandy Center, which was the first off-price center in the Chicago area that I, that I was aware of, at least. Talk about the off-price business at that point, because this was the early 80s. My sense was that you were the pioneer in that business. This is way before the Mills concept. This is off-price retail in general. So talk about right, that. That was the precursor. I really was convinced people wanted value and their merchants that produced value. And uh, I, I was the regional developer in Washington area for Safeway. Right. And, okay. uh, mm-hmm. And we built Great Falls, which, my God, I had the Citizen Association do the planning because it was the toughest place in the city in the metropolitan area to get approvals. But then Safeway said they wanted to be somewhere around the Baltimore Washington Parkway and the Beltway. And I acquired the site that were Greenway Center to build Greenway Center at the Baltimore Washington Parkway and the Beltway. And it was a large site. Right. And I said, well, you know, maybe we build a large center here. This is way before Potomac Mills. And Safeway built their first superstore. I got them to build that. And I met Marshalls, and we put the first large Marshalls outside of New York there. And off-price was just starting. And we started putting off-price stores in the project. And... Interestingly, I was on a panel at ICSC and some other guy said, gee, I started the off-price business in California. And this guy started an off-price center there. Why I started this one here. We didn't even know each other. And, you know, it was uh-huh. by coincidence. 
you know, whether one started a week before the other, who knows. But that was the beginning of expanding Marshalls around the country. We became their national developer mm-hmm. and brought all these off-price stores together. So were they, Marshalls was the first real off-price retailer at the time? Yes. Uh, they were the first one. Okay. Yes. TJ Maxx and all those were, were later. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we brought TJ Maxx into in Chevy Chase and there. But, you know, back then you dealt with the owners or they had a small real estate department. And it was much more intimate. And, you know, the guy, what was TJ Maxx? Two Jewish guys from Brooklyn or something? Yeah. TJ, that's what it meant. Right, and uh, then all the shoe, the shoe stores too. All those discount, you know, all those discount shoe stores that came out, Payless shoes, and all those. Guys. Right, all of yeah. There were a whole bunch of those. It was quite an industry that grew so quickly. So you did a lot of that kind of centers around the Washington area, you know, in Montgomery Village. And- yeah, and then and then yeah, Montgomery Village and one in Montgomery Village two, and then the Safeway. We built a Germantown shopping center. And then we built Briggs Cheney Shopping Center, which right. is quite large, and on 29, right. lots of strip centers in Washington area. Then uh, Marshalls asked us to be their national developer. So I think we went to Texas. I built one in Omaha, which is masochism at its finest. Uh, <laughs> but we built Dallas and Houston. I remember how... Uh, Dealing in Texas, I stuttered a little bit because they were so, not Dallas, they were good, but Houston, they're some of the biggest dishonest people I ever met were in Houston. Really? Yeah. yeah. But then maybe I just ran into a bad crew, but <laughs> tell you things that weren't the truth and people would show a site that they owned that they didn't own and it was pretty mm-hmm. tough. But we built those cities and we built around the country for Marshalls and, and built this whole cadre. Then uh, I came to the conclusion that the, these off-price centers didn't have enough critical mass to draw a large radius of people in metropolitan areas. And we needed a larger trade area. Mm-hmm. And I happened to, we own that land, my partner and I own the land where Potomac Mills was. And that's why I convinced Wacoma. Then I can. Then I convinced. Um, oh, IKEA. Then I convinced. Uh, North, several Nordstrom. Nordstrom North, came. Then, Nordstrom right? Oh, that was really interesting. I went used to went up to Seattle to meet with them, and they had one Nordstrom rack, I think, in Seattle, and mm-hmm. they were fabulous people. You know, back then there really weren't a lot of chains, right? And you were dealing with the owners of these companies. The, the founders of these companies or the kids of the founders of these companies. And it was a family operation. So you, they ought to come out and kick the tires and look at it. And then their brother-in-law would come out. Every, every chain was like that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was much more personal than now. And then, you know, now you've got real estate departments and public companies and I mean, very few were public. So, so- did you bring Marshalls also to Potomac Mills? Did yes. They, yeah. So your cadre there from all those tenants that came with all this, the, you know, being Marshalls national developer, kind of all assimilated then to a different mindset of a much larger scale outlet 
type off price development. So this was kind of an evolution. Well, yeah, Starting, because I think these stores that do value your margins were tighter and you right. needed higher volumes. Right. And these small strip centers couldn't produce enough volume because the malls were, been, mm-hmm. were dominating. So we right. need to do a mall that drew a large population. And Potomac Mills, mm-hmm. you know, we would tell the outlet people we were outside, you know, we were south of Washington in the sticks. And we tell the, I said earlier, we tell the off price people we're in D.C., metropolitan area. So we would, uh, you know, sell something. It was hot or cold, depending on who you wanted to sell. So did you get a sense that building this thing, and it was a funky development deal in that it was a a steel building, as I recall, and it was a million square foot on one level, as I recall. Yeah, it was over a million feet, two million feet it landed up. It became the largest tourist attraction in the state of Virginia for, I mean, at least 10, maybe 20 years. I don't know. Maybe it still is one of them. It's just yeah, amazing. It's, amazing. it's an amazing assimilation of, uh, of ideas there. I marvel at it. It was an amazing project. And then you took it national. So talk Correct. about that process and, you know, looking for sites of that magnitude and location uh, in other markets. Yeah, we did one north of Chicago. Again, we had to be in a place that was halfway between a city and not a city. So we got halfway between them. Milwaukee and Chicago and built Gurney Mills. The most exciting one was in Fort Lauderdale, which um, they were building a interstate highway, Sawgrass Expressway, that connected the whole west side of the growth area in South Florida. And it was pioneering back then. Now it's bumper to bumper. But we picked, got a site, my partner got a site at, the first interchange north of where the two interstates meet, 295, 495, one of the 95s going north and south, and 795, I forgot the number of it. And then the East-West Expressway, and we were the first interchange north. So we had enormous access to the growth area, plus, of course, the millions of tourists that go to South Florida. And one of the things that's interesting is we had South Americans uh, would come to Sawgrass Mills and just buy tons and tons of product because it was much cheaper than it was anything in their home. And they'd either ship it back or take it back as luggage. So they bring empty suitcases and fill them up <laughs> Sawgrass Mills. Wow. Wow. So how many did you build total? How many uh, before you you know, the Mills Corporation, you sold the, you sold the, the mills. You went, it went public. It went public and then our German partners took control of it. Right. Uh, but basically, how many? We had Gurney Mills, Potomac Mills, Sawgrass Mills. We did one in California. Franklin there, Mills. Franklin Mills in Philly. I think there were six or seven of them. Okay. I thought there were like 10 or 15, but Okay. Well, there were eventually, I mean, you know, we still kept building them. Right, Uh, right. I just felt that these small strip centers near regular malls couldn't do enough volume to give value. And that's the reason we built the mills is to get high high enough value, volume to uh, get this margin for merchants to succeed. 
So let me shift for a moment and uh, refer back to a comment or a quote from your, your son's interview with me recently on the podcast. And he told me when he was a little guy growing up, he said, he said you lived with a telephone stuck to your ear. <laughs> and, and he said that you had more tenacity than any person he's ever known. And they would keep running into a brick wall and keep running into it until that brick wall would keep falling over. So you had incredible determination and, and, will, and willpower. So my guess is that that is why you were able to withstand and go through all the issues that you did in these major mixed-use development projects. Some of them were 10 to 15, even 20 years in the making. So talk about some of those experience, the feelings and the, you know, the frustrations and how you're able to deal with getting some of these projects built. I mean, the projects you've talked about, some of them, I mean, Washington Harbor took, you know, from the time you were in college until 1985 to build. So almost 20 years, you know, talk through some of those angsts and issues that you went through over those times. I don't know. When you're a masochist, you sometimes have to prove it. <laughs> uh, but and Georgetown Park was positively seen by the citizens and we actually worked with them when we were developing it to get their input uh, so that went well but when we got down to the harbor it went they went the other way Eva Hinton Evil Hinton got these people to turn against us when I never understood why we were getting rid of uh, the you know the coal plants and the and the railroads and the trucks and and replacing it with and we cut the, the zoning required a lot higher buildings and we cut it down for them then we had to get two presidents to sign off right uh, those projects were difficult I think the urban projects are much tougher than the suburban projects. Yeah, well, another two other projects I want to bring up is one is uh, with the PADC on Pennsylvania Avenue. I which did that is another with my pro- partner, and we had a really good team. But that was different because it was owned by the federal government on a renew- the urban renewed Pennsylvania Avenue. You can, people can imagine that, and they had this tract, and it was a competition between three or four people, and I think uh, we were Mar- Market Square. surprised to win that, huh? We're, we're talking about Market Square right now. Market right? Square. Right. And Market Square, we had to get approvals there. It was federal approvals and Park Service approvals, and I. it's it just, you know, when you're walking up a step, you don't realize whether it's one floor or the Washington Monument. <laughs> okay. you, know, you just keep walking until you get to the top <laughs> and you say god was that high and difficult but you never knew it when you took the first step because nobody shows what's above you pennsylvania avenue my partners then were richard kramer and steve Grigg, and they were good development guys and after that we then did gallery place which was well, I thought the I thought the portals was was the portals. Bonus. Yes, we did the portals, and then I split with Richard and gave them interest in the portals, and he gave me the interest in the mills and so forth. Mm-hmm. Portals was uh, another 
government offering that we won. And, you know, it's, it's hard dealing with government because they have a different objective than the developer. Developer has to get some return on money, has to deal with the time. Government doesn't look at time. And uh, with, uh, you know, and citizens groups have every right to be heard. But the question is balanced between that and what makes sense for a city. And uh, how did you get your financiers back then? Because there wasn't a lot of open mind. How did you get your financiers to sit at the table with you and, and, you know, live with how you were able to go through all this? I mean, that had to have been a challenge. Well, Chase had done a lot of work with me on um, the strip centers. And then I got him to do Washington Harbor, Chase Manhattan. And then they learned how tough that was. <laughs> I mean, do you understand when I was building Washington Harbor, interest rates went to 21% prime. Right. Right. You can't make money at double digit, you know, no. and uh, government use, instead of having intelligent fiscal policy in government, you went to this period where they used high interest rates to control it. And they didn't care if they caused damage. They slowed down inflation. It was really interesting. Reagan did a really brilliant thing. He redefined inflation. (laughs) So, you know, Carter was going crazy and making all these high interest rates. Reagan came in and said, he got his guys to redefine inflation and took the most inflationary things out of definition. All of a sudden inflation dropped three or 400 basis points. Because it was redefined. Oh, we changed everything in six months. He just changed the definition. And it was probably the right thing to do because mm-hmm. stuff that was dominating inflation really wasn't that as high a percentage of people's expenditures. But it forced everybody to increase pricing because of the government's index that really was not reasonable. So I do like the fact that, that the Reagan era and redefined it absolutely brilliant so that he cut inflation by changing the definition (laughs) well the tax law of 1986 changed a lot in real estate too with the syndication that helped a lot yes that made syndication work and allowed us to get more more investors well it actually changed the tax law such that made syndication more difficult to do from a tax write-off standpoint but it, you know, it kind of changed the, the, to, to more of a cash flow basis business. And then the REITs followed the early 90s. And that, that obviously propelled the industry significantly after the problems we had in the early 90s. So yeah. uh, it was the, interesting. The problem with the real estate business is either good or bad. Uh, it sounds like it's, it's hard to say, but it's either great or terrible. And if we... Great to just call it moderate for years so you could actually do something. But we went through these swings up and down and up and down on a roller coaster of interest rates, and which then caused money supplies, which caused equity. And it reached a point where I couldn't do anything but go public because there was no other money available. Right. uh, I formed Mills Corporation. So when you when you went public, you decided that you didn't want to run a public company. 
Is that pretty much the, the situation at the time? I had my German partners are were very control oriented. And what ha- what's happening is when I'm an entrepreneur, I can make a decision, right or wrong, it costs me. When you're in a public company, a lot of people have to make a decision and entrepreneurship disappears. Right. And that really is what hurt us at Mills because once you take the entrepreneurship out of it, you then have a commodity company and real estate may be thought of as a commodity, but retail real estate is a, is a moving, living aspect. And if you don't understand how that moves, you can't make money in it or make it survive. So the dynamics of retail make it a difficult thing to, to make a machine out of it. You're saying that you need the creative aspect of change, dynamism, making it happen, you know, being reflexive to the consumer needs. And that's difficult in a public environment. Yeah, especially, you know, we merged Mills into Simon. And Mel Simon was a close friend of mine, Herbie Simon. Yep. And they were the most fun people in the world. And their son, David, now runs it. And it's very run, run professionally. But when, when you have to depend on Wall Street, right. with the idiosyncrasies of the money market, remember, they were going, they were like a roller coaster. Yep. And you're trying to do a steady business and the, the economy and the interest rates are fluctuating by several hundred basis points over a couple of years. It's about really hard to make money. So you, the public vehicle was, is really the most effective. And we merged Mills into Simon. And I love the Simon brothers. And David Simon obviously runs it now. Tough, smart, capable man. After you decided to get to stay in the entrepreneurial sector and not be in the public sector, you uh, decided that you were looking for another project to do. And Marion Berry, I think, was just got the Verizon Center done with a polling. And they were looking for some, something to attract, you know, consumers or people coming to the, to the Verizon Center. What could they do? Where could they go? Where could they eat? Where could they shop? And well, you and Chip Ackridge came together and, and came yeah. together with that concept, right? It's a little more than that. Um, okay. When the city went bankrupt, I told Marion, let me put together a task force of federal government, local people, citizens groups mm-hmm. to be able to figure where we're unify us as a city to where we're headed and get a plan. Being an urban planner, you need a plan. This and was early, 90, early 1990s, correct? Early 1990s. And it's a point where interest rates were whatever, yeah. 18%. But I don't think you can double, once you're into double digit, as I said earlier, I don't think anything more. But the question is, there was a lot of racial fighting in the city then. There was a lot of uh, mistrust. You know, you had a, you could draw a line along maybe 16th Street or, yes, you know, white on one side and black on the other. Just terrible. And I was a civil rights picketer. I was, I sat, my brother and I and my fraternity brother named Vince Gray sat in front of King when he did his I had a dream speech. And, you know, I always believe that you have to have respect for people. And I mean, color of their skin is irrelevant to what they can or can't do. 
So we brought, and, and Marion, you know, he had a PhD in chemistry. He was one of the smartest people I ever met. He never picked up his degree because he got involved in the civil rights movement. He was unappreciated for his management skills and his capability of making decisions at a time when the city desperately needed decisions and bringing coming together between the white black in neighborhoods and the transition the city was going through at a time of ridiculous interest rates and problems, you know, with riots and all these things that only exacerbated the situation. So we put a task force together and uh, I built Bob Gray's, I put him in Market House at, uh, or at the, at Georgetown Park, not the market, for his headquarters at the powerhouse. He helped me get the Reagan people and the Bush people to participate in this effort to bring this city together. There was so much animosity between Republicans and Democrats, which is stupid as hell. It's one country, one community. How do we solve it to make it work, the nation's capital work? Mm -hmm. And the task force we put together uh, started with about 10 people, ended up with 30-some, 40 people, undersecretary of Congress, uh, you know, we had a couple cabinet secretaries, and we literally planned the city. And it wasn't an urban planning, it was a, move, a how do you make things happen? How do you get housing to really work? How do you get retail to really work? How do you get transportation to really work? And as part of that, I undertook, PADC had a, a competition and I undertook to, and won the competition for uh, Market Square and then went ahead and did Gallery Place. I knew A. Poland as a little kid and, uh, <laughs> and, when I was, and he was probably one of the finest people I ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's work together to tie it together. And he thought I was crazy enough to work with. And we did Gallery Place. The problem with urban projects, you never know when you dig in the ground what you find between water and, I mean, turn, turns out there's a river that goes under D.C. The Tiber River. The yeah. Tiber River. Well, when you're building, it's a pain in the ass. You've got to pump all that <laughs> stuff out. Uh-huh. ran into part of that at Market Square. You ran into part of it at Gallery Place. But when, you're, when you believe in making something work, you have to have enough vision to make it work. What really hurt us the most were interest rates becoming double digit, which was very painful. So talk about, uh, your, relation, talk about your relationship with Chip Ackridge and how that came together for that project. Chip is an amazing person and his partner, Tom Wilbur, is. Mm-hmm. And they built lots of office buildings. Right. And, and uh, I'm part of a company that did the residential. And somehow, I'm trying to remember how we got together. I know he has a place here in Easton and I have one, but I I don't think it was because we lived here. I think it was somehow, maybe because he was on the task force. That's what I think he was on the task force that I convinced him, let's pick a project to do. And that was Gallery Place. Yep. And we then got the AFL-CIO union to come in as an equity partner, Uh which meant we had to build a union. And that was one of the most 
painful processes because of the cost that you know come with it. But we were able to finance it and get the equity and build it. It's exciting. So what was unique about that project? It's either exciting or masochism. It's probably a comedy. <laughs> what was exciting about that project in your mind or put, pulling that project together? When I led the task force <clears throat> that tried to rebuild downtown, and it, we looked at how great it is, but it was crime. It was, right. you know, vacant buildings. It was really Chinatown. Chinatown. Uh, well, it's just the whole part of downtown east of George, Georgetown was a problem. And then east of 16th Street was worse. And so by the task force coming up with a plan, we were able to get federal dollars to do a lot of infrastructure things that needed to be done in the city to get the metro and all those components funded. And with that, it laid a good foundation to do urban projects in the city. The biggest problem is, you know, when you dig in a hole to build three levels of underground parking and you find out you're in, there's a stream called Tiber Creek that's right. running under your project and you've got an entire river going through the, underneath your project. It's not inexpensive to fix that. It's a nightmare. Uh, but Chip Ackridge and Tom Wilbur are amazing people and put up with us in that. And now we're doing River Point. Right. right down on the Anacostia, which was a federal office building. And what's interesting about it, it's mostly housing and great restaurants and a big market done by Spike Jurdy, who won the James Beard Award for the best right. chef. Really that. Mm-hmm. And there, again, pioneering, the city decided that they wanted to see development on the Anacostia and not on the Potomac. And they funded the money to build all the projects that are being done on the Anacostia and down in Southeast, South, you know, Southeast. And we're technically in Southwest, but we're really Southeast area, East of uh, Fort McNair. And that area is now the fastest growing area in the city because the city committed from, from this mayor and prior to that to make this, an important growth area of the city, mm-hmm. south of the capital. And it was really smart of the city and it's great planning. And River Point, which is, I did it with Chip Ackridge because he and his partner, Tom Wilbur, are doing the project north with the Union Pension Fund, mm-hmm. the, the north of uh, Gowrie Place, uh, north of uh, River Point, immediately after River Point. So let me shift gears for a moment, Herb. I know that other than real estate development, you have another initiative called the Chesapeake Crescent. Talk about that a little bit, what that is and what, what the origin of that, of that effort was. The basic thing about Chesapeake Crescent was D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and even Delaware, but D.C., Maryland, Virginia were separate entities that did not work together. But the community, but it's all one area. And because we have boundaries called the District of Columbia or boundaries called Maryland or Virginia, there really was not a lot of cooperation, forced cooperation. And man, remember, the Maryland Beltway was built eight or nine years before the Virginia Beltway, maybe 10. So the idea of having a group that worked together 
to come up with visions of how the region could work together was what Chesapeake Crescent was about. And we worked several years with that and getting, uh, getting the community states to respect each other. And that uh, state of Virginia, Mark Warner, who was an amazing per person, and the subsequent governors worked aggressively towards it. I love the new governor, the governor of Maryland. I just hope he stays forever. He's a Republican, but I, he, as he said, I don't care what party I am. He could easily be a Democrat, and he's a Democrat or Republican or whatever he is, but he's an amazing person who listens and believes. Yes. So you have uh, really great leadership in the District of Maryland and Virginia to work together. That doesn't mean it always happens and each have their own uh, citizen issues and economic issues. And, uh, but we try to bring that together for the, the region at a point where people weren't talking to each other, things weren't happening. And, you know, it was one large metropolitan area growing, Washington and Baltimore is growing together. You know, it's interesting. I looked at all the things that could be done and somebody said to me, what did Chip Baltimore do? I said, the best thing you could do is have the metro go straight to Baltimore, nonstop. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, you know, again, uh, Loudoun County is 41 miles and Baltimore is 38 miles. And they've ex Virginia extended all the metro all the way through, to, you know, to Leesburg and Loudoun County. And that area has prospered from the extension of metro. Why we can't get the metro extended to Baltimore? and have one metro. To me, that's something that is intelligent and should be done. And I, you know, uh, I just don't know how you get it accomplished, but- Well, it's know, interesting. The, the, it's the one economic region, Washington, Baltimore. Well, the, the port of Baltimore is a big part of it. And, you know, obviously, you know, the, you look at ports being a major shipping and transportation issue. You know, the Washington Baltimore area is not known as an industrial market per se. Baltimore is to some extent, but not nearly like Los Angeles or other major ports. So, had, had we had a little bit more of an industrial growth in this region potentially, but we also had Washington being the federal government head, this was always an office market. It was an office based market and driven by government needs. And, and then you look at Northern Virginia, why it grew is because of the Defense Department and its growth and all the death sciences. And that's why, you know, that was a more profitable part of the market to grow. Whereas Maryland focused on life sciences, NIH, all those things. So you look at those dynamics and you. The you military say, already grew at Frederick and that extension, the metro should be out of Frederick. I mean, it's. Why is not the case? The metro ought to be connecting Washington and Baltimore. Uh, I love the governor of Maryland, but I wish he would look at making one metropolitan Washington. Baltimore. Well, he's he's struggling right now with the Purple Line, which is the connection that goes through where you grew up, uh, through Silver Spring and connecting Bethesda to New Carrollton. And they're running into major economic challenges there to the point where the project is, is at risk of not even happening, unfortunately. 
that would be a huge boon, I think, for for Maryland as well, you know, for the inner, inner suburbs of Maryland, particularly Prince George's County. You know, I think that you get that going, and I think your your dream of go, extending up to Baltimore is realistic, but we got to get this thing done first, I think. What's your perspective well, on that? He's an exceptional governor. Yep. But how he can, you know, solving regional issues and local issues and citizen issues, that may be something for Moses and Jesus to negotiate. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about real estate markets and more in general. So you mentioned the internet and its impact on retail today. What do you think retailers, I mean, retail developers should think about going forward? I mean, if you're Simon, you mentioned Simon Properties, what, maybe two thirds of their portfolio may not be viable in 10 years. You know, what do you do with that real estate today? How do you transition these big regional malls that, you know, with anchors closing and department stores not being viable going forward? How do they think that, how do they think about that? You're a visionary. What would you do if you were in their shoes today? Well, back then I formed a company called LYTE and had IBM and I Simon and a bunch of people trying to do an internet shopping thing. And it was before Amazon. And, it, you know, there wasn't room for two in, in the business. But I do think that it has to be ubiquitous between shopping, whether it's shopping's done in person or shopping's done on the web. And it needs to be seamless. And uh, if I had any suggestion, I would figure a way to have really strong internet sales whether you partner with Amazon or find a way to do it yourself, tied to the internet. The smartest company that does that is Target. And if you want to get something from Target, you order it on the web, you drive by, and they literally put it in the back of your car, and or you can go in the store and go shopping. They are the smartest retailer in America. And they figured out how to blend the internet and virtual and, 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 you know, real shopping. And that's really what Simon or malls need to figure out how to make it convenient and easy. It's, it isn't that a consumer wants to go on the web or a consumer wants to go to a store. A consumer wants to see selection price and be able, you know, there isn't one woman who has the same shape as any other woman. And they provide, they buy 80% of all goods. So you have to find a way to make it easy for a woman to be able to shop virtually and physically, and it has to be seamless. If I had any suggestions to Simon or any mall owner, copy Target and add virtual capabilities of being able to measure people and being able to say, what fits them or doesn't fit them on product that's in all the stores. The mall owner has to dig all the way through everything in every store and make it integrated so that when somebody, a woman's looking to buy something, it she can see it on the web, see if it fits her, if it's clothing, which it usually dominates mall sales. Or and and have if they if they see a uh, something for a house. Maybe their house is on the web and they can show how it fits there. 
but using technology to make it easier for shopping. As Amazon has taken that on and done successfully, successfully, the only retailer that I think who's taken the step is Target, and maybe there are others that are as effective. But what do you think of Walmart and their their strategy? I think you know Walmart. You can order stuff and pick it up and have it shipped. And again, it needs to be ubiquitous. They are a brilliant group of merchants. And I remember dealing with them when I went down there to, to try to have them build a store and it was 10 bucks a share. And they had a, you know, the head of real estate was also the vice president of operations. I mean, it was a small company and they did an amazing job at Walmart. And, uh, A, understand your consumer, understand how to serve them as best you can, and do it better than anybody else, and you'll succeed, whether it's a merchant, whether it's a mall owner. And I I think to some degree, the mall owners need to think like merchants. Well, it's also interesting looking at, at Potomac Mills and your Mills concept. Not only did you have people shopping there for you know, clothing, et cetera. But there was an experience of, of shopping and you had experiential retailers such that, you know, there was an entertainment feature to it. Right. And this is a theme that I'm hearing more and more about retail is, you know, the experience is more important than the goods you purchase. I mean, the actual feeling of being there among people, having something to look at. I think of Las Vegas and the shopping experience you have there. It's more about being in the experience as opposed to the goods that you're, you're taking away. So it's kind of a, it's a social thing as much as anything. And that's a big part of retail in my experience, at least. Right. Well, women buy 80% of all goods. Right. So I really believe that you have to be able to solve the need of uh, women. One is every woman's a different size. So you need to use technology to let them know what fits them, whether you have to integrate virtual and physical. You should not say, well, I have a store and it's physical, or I have a store at virtual. No, it needs to be seamless. Uh, You need to be able to, if it's shopping with, in a mall, you've got to be able to solve their kids that are pulling on them and driving crazy. And (laughs) then you've got, when they get to be teenagers, you've got to figure with their idiosyncrasies and hanging out with their friends and how you deal with that intelligently. Uh, you know, you got to be as much a psychiatrist as a developer. <laughs> That's interesting. So looking at mixed use and the, the interplay between different uses and buildings, which you envisioned even as a college student, you know, you thought, you know, we, we need to bring all these uses together. Talk me through that process. I mean, Integrating, I mean, physically, there's challenges putting retail and office and apartments to get or residential because of all the distribution and HVAC issues and all the physical aspects of it. But what about the synergy of the uses and why it's important to put mixed uses together? Talk about that because I know you're a pioneer in that thought process. So think about Tell me how you think that through. Retail energizes the street. Restaurants energize the street. Right. You need that energy is critical to making it feel safe and desirable for someone 
to live in a place. Mm-hmm. You also need to have variety of services for people. And when you have food available to them, whether prepared or, or they can buy food, that's very critical. You know, you have a lot of delivery companies now that do that. So you don't need it in the building, but it's better to have it in the building. You want to go down and get a drink or you want something delivered to your apartment. It's a lot easier. And having uh, a sense of community, which is so people feel comfortable living in a place. And I actually think adding components that people do good for their community is really important. It used to be a black-white issue, then it became a rich-poor issue. And I think it's more of a rich-poor issue. It's how do you help your fellow resident and feel that you've given back and make you feel better where you live. So that if you can have components that are doing good for the community tied into a project, I think is important as and what's important is having good restaurants and and shopping. So even even outside of real estate, what individuals have inspired you? You mentioned Marion Barry in the city and you mentioned Abe Poland. Who else has inspired you over your career that you know that you've worked with? You've worked with thousands of people. And and who what other people that you either work with or partners with or that you you know looked up to is were that were kind of inspirations to you? Well, Dick Donahoe and his uh, son, his, uh, nephew, or whatever, that we did Georgetown Park together was an amazing guy because he had enough patience to deal with me, which is hard. The Donahoe and, companies, yes. Donahoe. Uh-huh. And they were, sadly, he died, then his nephew died. It was really hurt. But they were just terrific people. It's Chip Ackridge and his partner, Tom Wilbur, are terrific people because they put up with me and they can share the vision, but also have the capability of dealing with the pragmatic daily issues. I think that in the district, I, guys like Doug Jamal, I think he's amazing. Doug Jamal's got more chutzpah, I, I don't want to say another word, than anybody I've ever met. And Doug understands that like, he goes so far out on a limb that the limb must be made out of iron. And he's an amazing guy. And remember, he started as a retailer. He I had know. the wit. And I know. I started out doing retail development. I wasn't a retailer, but retail development. And those are people that understand people and needs of people and what makes people tick. And that's what Jamal does. And he's mm-hmm. built it into his projects. And we try to do it Western. And I think Ackridge has been materially involved with us in that process. But, you know, it's not about, I'm going to go build an office building, I'm going to build a shopping center, I'm going to go build a, a hotel. Making it, making communities that have those areas integrated intelligently and planned intelligently, and the city cooperating. You know, one of the problems we, we're dealing with now is that the mess that's occurred since this uh, COVID has put enormous financial strains on the district, I'm sure as all their governments. And the district can't spend money on public walkways and green areas and amenities for their citizens at a time when 
they're always needed and they're always needed to encourage and sustain development. And that's a shame because the priority of dealing with the epidemic or pandemic or whatever you want to call it has only made it difficult to make the city more integrated in terms of its vitality than it would have been that it is now because of the amount of money that this virus is usurping out of the budget. So talk a little bit about talk a little bit about your life priorities, Herb. I know you've been through a lot, and I heard from your son, and you know what he grew up watching you. He he worshipped you as a, as a child, and so talk about you know your family and and also giving back. And you talked about Chesapeake Crescent, so that obviously is a a passion of yours of giving back. But talk about how you prioritize your life a little bit. Well, one. I have incredible people working with me, like Paige Grizzlick and John Villiani and Pam Westington, people that work daily, in addition to Chip Ackwards and Tom Wilbur and their team. And that's really important to, for physical development. In terms of community, I headed up, I basically moved east and I have an apartment in the district and I have a place in the Key West. But Somehow, I got friendly with the mayor of Easton, and we came up with a plan of how to plan even that city, and and we formed an economic development organization that didn't even have one. Uh, That's interesting. A middle-sized town needs that kind of view and vision and future. What, to me, is important, family's number one, and we've had some challenges in our family with two different families. So, you know, Having two separate families is hard to integrate. People are people and people, emotion is difficult. And that's been a challenge, whether it's my fault or anybody's fault, it exists. Uh, Second thing is my grandkids, my wife and I had our first grandchild and Ben has his kids and there's nothing more delicious grandkids and what you can do to help them. I'm now 77 years old. Hopefully I'm finishing my last project with Chip and Tom and I can continue to help this city, Easton while I'm here. Mm -hmm. Spend the winters in Key West, which they don't need any of my help. Uh, But they (laughs) have some terrific people running that place. That's great. So looking back at your career, you mentioned many big things, but in, if you had had to think about your biggest win, your biggest loss, and the most surprising thing that ever happened to you, what could, how could you, uh, sh- could you share those thoughts? Well, there are two. One is doing mills, and the other one's doing uh, urban projects from Georgetown Park to Market Square to Gallery Place to mm-hmm. now uh, uh, the project we're doing down on the, on the Anacostia. I think urban mixed-use retail is really the most sensitive. Uh, and the big question is, will the city work with you to make it a community? Sure. And that's, you know, again, today the COVID costs that put burdens on the city to make it difficult. Number two, uh, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I'm 77. I work out every day, but that doesn't guarantee I had thyroid cancer. I've had various 
ulcers. And of course, I get ulcers. I'm a developer. But basically, better to give ulcers and get them. I don't know. But in the meantime, being responsible to the people that are that that work with you, like Paige Grizzlick and Pam Westling and John Villiani and mm -hmm. Tom Wilbur and Chap uh, Chip Ackridge. It's a pleasure to work with people that are that competent and that capable. That's um, great. I Paige, she was a PGA golf pro, and I convinced her to get into development. They <laughs> really do well. Unfortunately, I don't have to play golf with her because I would lose. So, what was the biggest loss? I mean, what looking back at your life? I mean, what and your career? What 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 was the big? You know, looking back, gee, gosh, I wish I had done that differently. Or what? You know, what what happened that that you were able to overcome? That uh, well, I'm not setback. What I feel is a big loss that I haven't been able to overcome is sort of the fight between the kids, one family A and family B. That's too uh, bad. Difficult. Number two, loss. I think having a consistent vision out of the district where they can see where the city's headed and share in that, it's been pretty good. The head of planning in the city, economic development, he's very competent. But mm -hmm. getting that on a consistent basis has always been difficult for the last yeah. 20 years. People are people. Yep, understood. So if you were lo uh, looking at your 25-year-old self today, Herb, what would you tell him? Well, what, what advice would you give him? Well, first, try to find out what they're good at, what they're interested in. I've got five kids, three sons. Each one's totally different, and each one has different interests. One is syndicating organic farms because he believes in the health of growing healthy food. Ben, who's doing amazing work with Fundrise, who's more of investor developer side than developer and you know, investor. Uh, my other son is a writer in California who's worked for sitcoms and various things. And it's a terrible business because you feel like you're on a roller coaster, but he's an amazing guy and he's got a great fiance. So each one is a different story. My youngest child, I was 50 when my last daughter was born. She's now 26 and she lives in, she runs a company, the European division of, a, of an American company. And she's, most of the time in Berlin, and she's got a boyfriend over there, and she seems very happy, and she's me as a girl, really, but she is terrifically dedicated to what she does. So it's what no one person's alike, even if they're identical twins. Right. And being able to meet the various needs of my children is pretty, you know, each one has a it's like each project you do, but they're even different. Yeah. It's different and the, and the building's different. That's interesting. So if you, if you could post a, uh, a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Herb? Be generous to your fellow man. Do good and you'll get the rewards. That's great. Is there anything else you'd like to say? 
to my listening audience, uh, Herb. I mean, this has been a great interview, and I really appreciate it. Uh, anything else you want to want to say? Yeah, or I any think parting that, thoughts. Yeah, right now, the turmoil caused by the coronavirus has dislodged so many smart and intelligent things people are doing, groups are doing, governments doing, and as soon as they get the antibody and all this stuff figured out and how to get shots to immune people. We got to go really back and look at how we get our communities back in shape. And one of the biggest thing is you have big poverty belts and you got to figure out how to get those people opportunity. And I think opportunity is the foundation of government. And that really, that one word should be the, the hallmark once we get out of the coronavirus. How do we get opportunity for all Americans? Okay. Well, on that, on that note, thank you very much uh, for your time. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon, Herb. Thank you uh, for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah. your viewers and listeners. Welcome back, uh, Tom, to uh, our episode postscript, as we do now for every episode. So what did you think of the Herb Miller discussion? It was a lot of fun. It was uh, really interesting to hear Herb talk and, um, you know, kind of look at previously had Ben, his son, on the podcast. And it was, it was a lot of fun to hear kind of two generations of um, people that have had such an influence on, on real estate and listen to both of those. I really enjoyed this one. What I want to talk about today was you guys, you guys talk a little bit about Tiber Creek in the podcast. And I looked up some fun facts about, about Tiber Creek. You know, it runs roughly along Constitutional Avenue. It was originally, I thought this was interesting, it was originally one of the selling points for making the national capital uh, here in D.C. The plan was to widen the creek and, and make it into a canal to connect into the Potomac. So kind of gave D.C. some advantages. and. Um, some other things about it, in, in 1871, the D.C. Board of Public Works uh, enclosed Tiber Creek into, uh, into a tunnel, an underground tunnel. And then, fast forward, there was uh, some flooding issues on 14th and Constitution in the mid-1990s during the construction of the Ronald Reagan building. Engineers, they found out a way to divert the water but what ended up happening was when, when they, they diverted that water table, the IRS building, which was built on wood piers, actually began to sink. So, so they had all sorts of issues as a result of that. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know if I've mentioned it here on the podcast before, but I work for a construction company and um, I've dealt with dewatering on quite a few projects. And uh, in, in, in more recent history here, the uh, African American Museum, um, you know, they dug obviously a, a really large hole. I think it was probably sixty or seventy foot deep there, right on the um, the mall. Whenever I, I talk to the dewatering contractors here in the D.C. area, everybody talks about that project and what a challenge it was to to keep that hole dry as as they excavated. And um, I, I guess at, at a glance, it, it was interesting to me because. It, 
generally that area seems pretty dry at, at this point, but obviously with Tiber Creek's um, close proximity to that project, I can understand why that was such a problem for them. So uh, well, really thought that was an interesting one. What's interesting is the history of, of Washington, D.C. Uh, geologically is fascinating. Constitution Avenue was the waterfront at one point when the city was originally founded back around 1800, right after George Washington handed over the the keys to John Adams uh, as the second president of the United States. Um, That's when the District of Columbia basically started. And so, you know, the L'Enfant Plan and all that was originated uh, as far as the layout and the hot you know, the capital of the White House were built. Capital was on the hill, of course, so it was on land. The White House was very close to the waterfront at that time. And so the mall is all landfill. Interestingly, Gallery Place, which is the project that uh, Herb talks about, is on 7th and between 7th and 6th Streets, northwest. So Tiber Creek kind of has tributaries as well. So it wasn't all just along what you just talked about. It kind of branches out underwater. So, and I believe that some engineering firms in the city have a full underground map of where it goes. So it'd be interesting to see what that is. And if anybody that starts construction going down more than two floors underground in the city of of Washington had better analyze that very carefully as as apparently Herb and, and Chip Eckridge uh, had not done as quite a thorough job doing the excavation there. Yeah. Because it seemed to him that it was somewhat of a surprise of that occurring. Right. right. Oh, it's interesting. You know, it, it was, like I mentioned, it was great listening to Herb after we'd had Ben as a guest and being able to compare and contrast kind of their father-son dynamic and you know there was there was a lot of things that they talk about that you could see a lot of similarities and, and and in some ways they're very different I thought that it was interesting that they both talk about the ability to keep up with changing markets but they both kind of had a, a, a different way of getting at that and in Ben Miller's interview he talks about the limitations if you are whatever your, your specialty might be, if you were the best condo builder out there, it might not be the right time to build condos and, and, and how that influences the market for people trying to kind of force their product or, or their, their market into kind of circumstances that it might not be advantageous. And then uh, Herb, he talks about, you know, his entrepreneurial spirit and kind of, uh, and how when Mills Corp, went public, how that kind of limited his ability to, to pivot and, and, and kind of keep up with the changing markets. I really like that quote that Herb came up with or, or said during the interview that was basically, uh, you know, real estate is, is, is a, a living, moving thing. Uh, it's not just a commodity like some people look at it, which is an interesting statement thinking about uh, fundraising and, and what they do. So, John, what was, what was your kind of take on, on kind of the comparing and contrasting of, uh, of, of Ben and his father? Well, I will say that uh, Ben is certainly a chip off the old block there, as they say, as far as entrepreneurial spirit and, and assertiveness and determination. 
both of them accomplished things that very few people that I've read or heard about have. They're extraordinarily visionary people. It's just in a different way. So Herb Miller just never gave up. Uh, he just saw things that other people didn't. I mean, when he was at George Washington University, he wrote a paper about the waterfront in Washington and looking at the industrial at that time in the 1960s. The, the Georgetown waterfront was all industrial. It was, you know, there's a cement plant and, you know, it was shipping and all that. And it goes back to basically the 18th century before the city actually was dedicated and Georgetown was its own place at that time. It was a shipping port. And the CNO Canal, uh, George Washington himself actually uh, laid out the, the survey plan for the CNO Canal, so, it, which is part of Georgetown's history. So he looked at that and said, you know, we ought to use the waterfront a better way than this. So he envisioned in his, when he was in college, he thought about urban planning for that area. And so he said, you know, we need to do something about that. So he went and met with CSX Realty and formed the venture to eventually build Washington Harbor. So in his mind as I, he saw a different use. And he said he had to go through two presidents to get that done, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. And finally it got done, but he had to fight interest rates which were double, you know, 21% prime in the uh, early 1980s. But he got it, got it going, got it started, and got CSX to believe in the, in the project and get it done. He had some real challenges with Georgetown to get that accomplished. So, he, <laughs> you know, he got Georgetown Park and got them on board. I think that was because it was on M Street, which is already an established retail environment. But to, to convert the harbor into what they had to do took a lot more effort, as you, as you heard. So that was that. Contrasting him to, to, to Ben, Ben had to look at, he had this passion of trying to bring the common man into real estate investment. So being a young guy, he'd like to invest, but he was, wasn't an accredited investor himself, and he knew that all of his friends weren't. So he wanted to figure out a way, okay, why can't somebody with 10 grand to invest, let's say, you know, why does he have to be, uh, have a net worth of over a million, you know, $2 million and all these different requirements? Yeah. So he sat down with an attorney and said, how do we figure this out? <laughs> yeah. He didn't, you know, he didn't think that, you know, this is just too much work. And I asked him, I said, why did you want to go through what you knew would be a very difficult effort. He said, you know, I just, I just felt it was wrong and I was going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so he did. Yeah. It was just, so in that way, you know, seeing obstacles that are mount, you know, gargantuan, they said, you know, there is a way, we're going to find a way. And Herb said, which was interesting, he said, you know, when you, cl- you climb the Washington Monument, you don't know how tall it is until you start. And then you just, you just take that first step and you just keep going. And you just keep climbing. And he said, I said, oh, my God. You know, I asked him, how, how did you think about doing, tackling such a massive undertaking? He said, I didn't know how massive it was until I got that, you know, into it. Yeah. 
He just yeah. said, get started. So the, the takeaway from that is if you believe in something strong enough and you've got the fortitude and find the fortitude of in belief, just keep going. Just mm-hmm. keep going. Don't give up. Don't stop. Just believe that it can get done. Figure out a way. Come at it different directions, however it takes. To try, you know. So there's some significant lessons from both of them. And I knew that about Herb because I've known him for thir- almost 30 years, more than that, actually. And I just I saw the accomplishments he had in the city, and I said, there's something about this guy that's unique, that's different to be able to do what he did because everyone says that getting things done in the district of Columbia is so challenging. And it was, and he talked about Marion Barry, who was the mayor for, you know, basically when the city had gone through, you know, just a different orientation. And of course, all the race riots he talks about and all the racial issues. And then the city went bankrupt, you know, in the, in the early 1990s. He didn't talk about Tony Williams, which I think he could have done, but he did not bring Tony Williams in, who basically brought financial discipline to the city. Yeah, it's hard to cover all of such a long career and a successful right. career in a short podcast. Right. Yeah, so the city went through a lot, uh, but I give him a lot of credit for what he was able to get accomplished, you know, believing in what his projects were going to deliver. Yeah. So. Well, this was, this was a really great one. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Great. So, uh, Tom, any other thoughts, comments, questions? That's it for today. Great. Okay. Well, again, uh, thank you for your perspective and interest. And uh, listeners, thank you for, your, uh, for listening to us. And I, I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. And uh, we will uh, we'll be back with you in the next couple of weeks with another one. Thank you very much. 